Hey, welcome to church. Um, if you don't know me, I'm Pastor Pete. I'm the lead pastor of uh, SWEC, and it's really gla- uh, great that you could join us, especially if you're here, maybe because you're staying behind a little bit for um, Master- Marshall's ordination service. We're really looking forward to that, and we hope you enjoy your time with us. Okay, um, if you look around, uh, do a Google search, or just look around the internet, you'll find that there are many versions of Jesus. There's even buff Jesus. That's right. All you guys who like working out. There's bikey Jesus. There's black Jesus. There's Korean Jesus. There's even Buddhist Jesus. And now, why are there so many versions of Jesus? It's because, well, Jesus doesn't fit into any mold, does he? I mean, look, let's just talk about the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus, the meek and mild and peace-loving Jesus, well, then he comes and clears the temple in anger. Uh, You've got Jesus, the revolutionary, you know? But then he talks about submitting to Caesar and paying your taxes. You've got Jesus, who's wise and enlightened, um, like other religious founders. But then he makes ridiculous claims, and no other religious founder claims, that he himself is God. Like, you really can't box Jesus in, can you? And that's probably why in today's culture wars, you get both progressives and conservatives claiming to have Jesus on their side. He doesn't fit into any mold, left or right. You can't squeeze him into anything that you're comfortable with. And probably none more so in today's example of, or today's passage as an example. Um, we read it earlier. Jesus, uh, he's with a foreign, a Gentile woman who obviously had great need. And we've seen Jesus deal with those who are needy, right? We've seen Jesus deal with Gentiles. We've seen Jesus deal with women. And so you don't expect him here to be so, well, at least on the appearance, so heartless, so callous, even quite rude. I mean, he indirectly calls this woman a dog. Do you notice that? Like even in our culture where dogs are cute, Actually, in my culture, we eat dogs. But anyway, um, even in our culture where dogs are cute, you don't call people dogs. Now, especially, how much more so if you're a Jew? I mean, dogs were rabid scavengers. They were like a terrible insult for Jews. So what, what is, what's going on here? Why is Jesus being like this with this woman in need? Well, we're going to look at that today, but I want to give you a principle When it comes to reading about Jesus, when Jesus goes against expectations, whatever they are, are, there is always a reason, yeah? It's just like when Jesus asks a question, he probably already knows the answer. So there's always a reason when Jesus asks a question. So when he goes against expectations, we got to go deeper, don't we? Sometimes what seems to be a hard rock is going to hide some diamonds, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go digging. So I hope you're ready. Keep your Bibles open. Let's pray, and we'll get into it. Father God, thank you for a chance to look at the real Jesus, a Jesus beyond our expectations. By your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, we pray that we might meet the true you today, and that would change our lives. Amen. Okay, I've got an outline for you. It's a little bit more detailed, and you'll see for a reason those subpoints are actually important. But let's go. Let's keep your Bibles open. So verse 21, uh, we start leaving that place. Jesus withdrew to the Tyre, uh, region of Tyre and Sidon. Okay, Jesus was now in Gentile, non-Jewish territory, but he's not just in any Gentile territory. Tyre and Sidon were ancient enemies of God's people. They were part of what were known as the Philistines. Yeah, you heard of the Philistines? And there are ancient prophecies about Philistine downfall. 
As far as Jews were concerned, they were a cursed people. They were a cursed race. Keep going. Verse 22, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him. Now, Matthew doesn't just call her a Gentile. He actually uses the term Canaanite. It's especially insulting. It's like if you use the word Nazi instead of just German around a Jew, a modern Jew. And there she is crying out. Look what she says. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. She must have heard about Jesus, and she even appealed on the basis of his Jewish identity. She wasn't Jewish, but somehow she appealed to him on the basis of his Jewish identity. She calls him Son of David, which is another way of saying Messiah. Now, that's pretty significant because... Jesus' own Jewish contemporaries, especially the teachers of the law and even his own disciples, they often miss the fact of who Jesus is. And here we have a Gentile, Canaanite, Philistine background woman who knew who Jesus is. And she appealed to Jesus on that basis. But because she knew that, she must have known how even more unlikely her request would have been granted to a Jew, to a man, to the son of David. You've got to understand King David in the Old Testament, he was known for killing who? Philistines. All right. Goliath was a Philistine. There she is appealing to Jesus' own ancestry. And his own ancestor was someone who killed Philistines. Um, but desperate times call for desperate measures. Now, if you've ever, if you're a parent and you've had a child who's ever been critically ill, I mean, there is nothing you wouldn't do for them, right? And that's like her today. So here's where Jesus, um, as she comes to Jesus and appeals to him for, to have mercy, here is where we really see Jesus doing something we don't expect. So verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. Now at this point, we don't know why Jesus stays silent. Is he weighing up what to do? Uh, was he shocked by her boldness? Is he waiting for something? He stays silent. He doesn't say anything. Well, we don't get the answer just yet, but his disciples, well, they don't like to wait, so they speak up. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Now you can imagine the scene. They're all trying to get a little bit of peace and quiet. And this woman is like the groupie who won't go away. The disciples do what we expect them to do, right? Just get rid of her. Send her away. Now, we might balk at that. We might be thinking, well, the disciples, they're pretty callous. But the disciples were actually doing what every orthodox God-worshipping Jew of their day would have done to a woman like this. So that shouldn't have been unexpected. But then next, look what happens. Jesus doesn't do what we expect, even though his disciples do what would have been expected of them. Look what he says. Um, verse 24, we're up to the point called the crumbs. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, here we go. Jesus seems downright rude. Right? He's hard and callous. But more, more than that, isn't this like not the Jesus you read about? This is really out of character for Jesus if you've read the Gospels, right? This isn't the Jesus we've come to know, is it? Now, in every marriage, they say that fir the first year is the hardest. Now, why is it that the first year of marriage is the hardest? So, Gloria, Adrian, get ready. Um, it's because... 
<laughs> um, the real you comes out, okay? I mean, whatever you were like in courtship when you were dating, forget it. All right, you were nice and polite to their parents. Not now. You were clean and hygienic. Now, not anymore. Karen didn't know how gassy I was until about six months into marriage. Um, you were attentive and romantic, right? That's a thing of the past, okay? Because this is the real you now. Is this what's happening? I mean, is this the real Jesus? Now that we've kind of read a little bit more about him. You know, sometimes after the initial euphoria, the joy of becoming a Christian, where God seems so close, so readily at hand, answers so many prayers, suddenly you reach this point in your Christian life where he seems silent and his prayers don't seem to go anywhere and he may even seem distant. Have you experienced that? You used to experience a lot of blessing, but now things start going wrong. You see, at some point in every Christian's experience, you do ask the question, did I get it wrong? Should I have become a Christian? Did I make the wrong assessment about Jesus? Right, so what's happening here in this story is actually pretty relevant to us today. Asking the question, is this the real Jesus? Is it different to the Jesus I thought I knew? Now remember our principle. Here's an opportunity to look deeper and maybe to find some gold. See, when God is not what you expect, don't turn away from him. Press in harder. Pursue him even more. Because it always yields something unexpected but actually wonderful. So let's press a bit harder. Why would Jesus say the things he did to this woman? Well, the first thing I want you to know is Jesus actually makes absolutely true statements. He's not putting on falsehood here. He's not contradicting himself. He's not contradicting the Bible. Because there is a priority in the Bible, in the Old Testament, on God's Old Testament people, the Jews, all right? And that, that priority is even there in the New Testament. Jesus in John 4, don't turn to it, John 4, 22, he says, salvation is from the Jews. Paul in Romans 1, 17 says, the gospel is first for the Jews. Because the Bible, the New Testament comes as a, as a follow-on or as a climax of a lot of promises that are in the Old Testament, thousands and thousands of years. And the New Testament confirms that God doesn't play light on his promises. So you've got to remember Genesis, that it was Abraham, the father of the Israelites, the Jews, Abraham's family would be the ones that were blessed. In the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, it's David's family who would be blessed. In the Psalms, in the prophets, all the major, all minor prophets, God says he would come for his lost sheep, Israel, the Jews, and restore them first. Even Jesus' own ministry was first and foremost to Jews. Geographically, if you trace all the places where Jesus went, it pretty much centered around the land of the Jews. He called 12 disciples, 12 Jewish men, because they signified the new Israel. He would cleanse the temple in Jerusalem, the capital. He would die in Jerusalem, the capital. The Holy Spirit would be poured out in Jerusalem. Now, much as we don't like it, there is a real consistent priority in God's purposes and promises, as well as in Jesus, to prioritize the Jews, the Old Testament people of God. So 
whatever else you want to say, you want to say Jesus actually made a true statement. The lost sheep of Israel do come first. He is the shepherd who came to feed them. These lost sheep gather them first and foremost. And at that point, his mission among them wasn't yet complete. So it wasn't right for him to change the plan, to change the priority. Okay, that's what was going on. All right, Jesus made true statements. And yet that's not the whole story, right? It isn't. Because while that's true, well, there were lots of examples where Jesus did have, have opportunities with Gentiles, non-Jews. In, in chapter 8 of Matthew, Jesus, remember, he, ran, uh, he, he had a run-in with a centurion who was a Gentile with a paralyzed servant. And he not only healed the servant, he actually praised the centurion's faith because he had more faith than even Jews. So Jesus, you see, isn't dumb. He's purposeful. In fact, the reason why he is even in Gentile territory in Matthew 15 has to be for a reason. Right? John chapter 4, when he has a run-in with a Samaritan woman at the well, arguably Samaritans were even more hated than Jews. He did it on purpose, and then he did, went on and changed her life. So maybe we're not to take Jesus' words true as they are. We're not to take them as face value. Something else is going on here, isn't it? Maybe Jesus' words are a test. Maybe like us, he wanted the woman to dig deeper as well. He wanted her to be able to mine underneath a hard rock to maybe find diamonds. And if she did, then even she, a Gentile dog, could be part of the blessed people of God. Maybe that's what Jesus was doing. Well, in fact, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. So my last sub-point, God's people, look at verse 27. So Jesus just put it out there, okay? And then she says, yes, it is, uh, yes, it is Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, or the sense there is actually, dear woman, you have, ha you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. All right. This was what Jesus was going after. He was going after her faith. He wanted to bring it out. He wanted to unearth it. And, and now we see what a tremendous faith she had, what a model faith she had. Here's faith that comes completely empty-handed. You see, that's what she's doing, right? She throws herself completely on Jesus. There's no holding back. There's no fear of being vulnerable, and she has no doubt in her mind, even what Jesus, after what Jesus said, no doubt that Jesus is good, even when he appears to be the opposite. So coming back to us, if for you, Jesus seems distant at this point in your Christian walk, or things are going wrong and you're questioning, have you maybe thought that he's wanting you to also lean harder, go deeper, persist in those what seems to be like unanswered prayers, to keep pushing because he wants to draw your faith out and show how it might shine through the darkness. Is that what Jesus is doing for you? Don't miss it because he could be. So I hope you're seeing or beginning to see that the unexpected Jesus acts in such a way completely purposefully. This whole conversation with this Canaanite woman had a purpose. When he seemed so hard, he was actually trying to get her to lean in harder. Now, this is even more, uh, more obvious 
when we see that there's a parallel in Matthew 15 in the second half of the passage that we just read. So we're going to go to the feeding, and there's no accident that all of the subpoints are exactly the same in the same order. See, there's a parallel, you see, between the Canaanite woman and the feeding of the 4,000. Here is where the gold of the passage will really shine. Okay, so firstly, the Gentiles. Verses 29 to 31, we'll look at for later for a reason. We'll come back to that. But it's obvious from the context, verse 31, that Jesus is still in Gentile, non-Jewish territory. And here the crowds are following him and he's healing them. And three days later, they're hungry and the supplies are running out. Now, what happens next should sound very familiar. Last week, you looked at it, didn't you, in little groups? Jesus, compassion, in chapter 14, remember, drove him to feed 5,000, well, 5,000 plus, it was 5,000 men, not including women and children. But you see, that feeding of the 5,000, where was that done? That was done in Jewish territory. Now, he's in Gentile territory. And so that's astounding, isn't it? Jesus is going to repeat what he did, the same miracle, but now amongst Gentiles. So let's go to the next subpoint, Jesus. Verse 32, Jesus called his disciples and said to him, Right, called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Right here he has compassion. Now again, this is a parallel to the first passage, the Canaanite woman. So could it be that earlier the silent Jesus also had compassion, but he was waiting to show it? Let's go to the disciples. Verse 33, his disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Now, it's pretty surprising they say that just a little bit after what happened in chapter 14. Um, so clearly they were not expecting Jesus to do that miracle of feeding again. Now, it could be that they doubted his power, probably, but they just seen him feed a greater crowd. So it was probably also because of where they are now and who these people were. You see, it's understandable that Israel's Messiah, Israel's shepherd king, would feed his own lost sheep. But that's not where they are. They're in Gentile territory. Why should Gentiles get the bread from the master's table? Ah, sounding familiar now, isn't it? So the next point... Crumbs, actually not crumbs, literally, but let's have a look. Verse 34, how many loaves do you have, Jesus asked? Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave it to his disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Right, you understand the parallel now? What we saw were just crumbs from the master's table. Once you see the parallel passage, they're not just crumbs anymore, are they? I mean, they're enough, more than enough, to feed the children and even the dogs, okay? More than enough leftover even. Seven is the biblical number for completeness, for fullness. He fed them and there was a complete full seven basketfuls of leftovers. So what does this show us once you put them in parallel? It shows that Jesus was always intending in breaking down the barriers, the boundaries of who's in and who's out. He was always wanting to feed 
the Gentiles, the Canaanite woman and her children, as well as the Gentile crowd. He was always wanting them to be also considered as one of his people. So final sub-point, verse 38, the number of those who ate were 4,000 men beside women and children. The good shepherd will feed his sheep, but his sheep are not just from his fold, they're from outside of his fold as well. You remember what he said in Matthew 8, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So I hope you see once you put these parallel, uh, passages in parallel that Jesus' puzzling interaction with the Canaanite woman, well, it's actually about something more than meets the eye, isn't it? But wait, there's more, because we missed the bit in the middle. So let's now go to the bit in the middle. And just because we're using a bread theme, let's just call it a sandwich, because structurally, you've got two parallel bits and something in the middle. It's a bit of a sandwich, all right? And we all know the best part of the sandwich is not the bread, it's what's in the middle, unless it's salad. That's just terrible. But otherwise, usually, it's the meat in the middle. Okay, let's have a look at what's in the middle. Verse 29. So this is after the the, the Canaanite woman, before the feeding of the 4,000. This bit's in the middle. This bit makes sense of everything else. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. Notice this. And they praise the God of Israel. Okay. Who are these people? They were Gentiles. Why? They praised the God of Israel, i.e., wasn't their God, but they praised the God of Israel. They were led to the God of Israel through what Jesus was doing here. Because the God of Israel always wanted to bless the nations. Yes, there's a priority on the Jews, but it's so that through the Jews, the Gentiles would be blessed and saved. That's actually God's promises to Abraham, that he would be blessed in order to be a blessing on the world. And so it's no surprise that it's the gospel of Matthew that will finish with the Great Commission, hey? So you see, if Jesus was being difficult with the Canaanite woman, it was for a reason. It was to highlight to her and to his disciples and to us some really important lessons. So let's go to these final Lessons. Number one, the lesson of faith. Jesus praises her for her faith. She's got a perfect example of the kind of faith that receives mercy. She gets right what so many others get wrong. And the first thing is that faith comes empty-handed. Remember, she doesn't get offended when Jesus calls her and her people effectively calls them dogs who can only hope for crumbs. Sometimes I feel like we get offended for her, don't we? But here is the thing. We must be clear that you and I are also dogs who really could only hope for crumbs. And if you're offended by that in relation to God, then in relation to God, rightly, we are just like her. We're dogs. We don't deserve anything. The best we could hope for is crumbs. If you get offended by that, then you're not seeing yourself in the right light and you are not able to exercise true biblical faith. Because only when we see ourselves in the presence of a holy God who owes us nothing, that's the beginning of being able to have saving faith. Because faith comes empty-handed. 
And if you come empty-handed, hoping only for crumbs, not deserving them, but hoping only for crumbs, guess what? It can turn into seven basketfuls overflowing. All right, that's faith. But then secondly, faith in God's revelation. Remember, even though she was an outsider, a Gentile, she called Jesus son of David, and then she calls him Lord. Um, Lord there doesn't just mean master, but Lord means supreme king. Lord is God. She knew that she came to Jesus on the basis of who he really was, not a made-up, her own version of Jesus. Now, that's important for us to hear because we live in a pluralistic world, right? People generally think it's a good thing if you have faith, any faith, really, in any God, in any spirituality. Just don't be dogmatic about your faith because all roads lead to heaven. I mean, that's the world we live in, right? Well, that's not real saving faith, is it? Even this outsider, the reason why she could come to Jesus and receive from him is because she had faith in who he is. We don't know how she came to understand that, but she came to understand who he really is. Because in the Bible, there really is only one road that leads to heaven. It's the one that God himself has walked and revealed. The person and the work of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Lord, the Son of God. Now, again, that's pretty offensive in our day and age. Seems pretty intolerant. Seems very anti-diversity. But let's think about it. If the first thing we learned about faith is true, then the second has to be true. Why? Spiritually and morally bankrupt people, if we really understand them, that we have such a great need that it would take God himself to come as a man to die on the cross in our place, to rise again from the dead for that need to be met. And it can't be a need that we ourselves, whether it's our personal feelings, our personal religion, or even our corporate religions, can actually make up. If there was salvation any other way than the way that God has revealed through Jesus coming and dying on a cross and rising again, if there was any other way, don't you think the Son of God would have just stayed in heaven? rather than have to suffer and die? If God had to go to such drastic means to save us because we are so drastically lost, then there really must only be one way, hey? Now, it may not convince you at this point in time if you're still spiritually searching, but I encourage you to keep asking, keep searching. Ask one of us, or better yet, um, I think Alpha's already kind of started and going along. So if you haven't done Alpha yet, don't worry, we're going to run it again, uh, hopefully more times than one next year. Come along to Alpha. They're going to help you answer that question. Okay. So that's faith has to be in God's revelation. And then the second thing we learn, really, in fact, this whole section is teaching us, Jesus' disciples, that there are no boundaries when it comes to God reaching and God loving and God having compassion. God actually, there may only be one way to God, but God wants anyone from any background across any boundary to have access to that one way. Jesus, uh, Christianity is at, at the, on the one hand exclusive, but it's on the other hand the most inclusive and actually historically speaking the most diverse religion there is. Yeah? You see, in feeding this 4,000, like the last feeding, the 5,000, there's a little detail that if you don't pay attention, you'll miss. And that is this, these miracles of feeding, Jesus wanted his disciples to actually feed the people. He does the miracle, 
He multiplies the bread, but they, in both feedings, distribute the bread. In fact, it was even clearer um, in the five, feeding of the 5,000. He begins that one by saying, you give them something to eat. And the disciples are like, huh, how are we going to do that? And then in the end, he, he, they do give them something to eat because Jesus does the miracle through them. Right? Same thing happens in, in this one. It's through the disciples. And by the way, um, it would have been okay in the feeding of the 5,000, but if they were distributing bread in Gentile territory, it would have made these Jewish men pretty unclean. It would have been pretty uncomfortable, actually not very kosher for them. So what do we learn about discipleship here? Well, it's this. Jesus doesn't just want to cross boundaries and reach those who are most on the outside. He doesn't just want to feed them with real spiritual food, satisfy their real spiritual hunger. He doesn't just want to love them and include them in his new people. He wants to use you as the means. You got that? Important point, isn't it? He wants to use you. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple, he wants to use us as the means by which this will happen, the crossing of boundaries, which means, church, get ready to be really uncomfortable. Because if you're following Jesus, whether collectively as SWEC or as individuals, you, you're going to find times where you're going to want to say no. You're going to say, Lord, that's too much. That is too radical. That's too costly. That's too tiring. That's too draining. I can't. I don't want to. No, not them, surely. But Jesus wants you to see they're hungry. They need to be fed. Oh, they desperately need a shepherd. And he wants you to remember you and I are no more deserving than they are, no matter who they are. You got crumbs that multiplied enough to fill you. So now take that the overflow that you've now got and through your hands, give it to others. Let's get the band up. We're going to sing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how fitting it is that today, even as we have seen something about who you really are, your heart for the lost, the outsider, And the fact that you want to use us, how fitting it is that we're going to take communion in a moment. And even today, I pray that as we take bread, the bread that symbolizes your broken body, the means by which we can be filled, that we'll not just take the bread and drink the cup and be self-satisfied, Lord, that you would help us today, even as we take communion, to be thinking, who can I allow this bread, this life, to overflow to, no matter what the boundaries are, no matter how far and how tiring, how difficult it is, Lord Jesus, give us your heart. Amen.